0: Welcome to Rich Pickings, a series which explores the investment beliefs and philosophies of prominent professional investors. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Keith Lloyd, CEO and Deputy CIO of Colchester Global Investors based in London. It's a big job. Colchester has over Australian $60 billion invested in just global sovereign debt, They have offices in the UK, Europe, the Middle East, North America, Asia and Australia. Welcome along, Keith. You're a long way from where you started your professional career in New Zealand. How did you end up in London?
1: Obviously, I'm just a simple old boy from Napier, uh, born in the um, 60s, I guess would be the way to um, frame it, so uh, a number of moons back. But um, yeah, so I went to the uh, Reserve Bank there in uh, Wellington. I, I studied at Massey University. Um, a macro monetary economist by training, did my undergraduate uh, studies there. Uh, then had the opportunity to um, come over here, actually, to uh, London to do postgraduate studies at the London School of e- Economics. And then after a brief stint back in Wellington there at the RBNZ um, in the late 80s, early 90s, I had the opportunity to uh, move to the World Bank in the early 90s at the time that the Soviet Union broke up, actually. Um, So I I was fortunate, really, to uh, join the the World Bank and move into their former Soviet Union area. And uh, I was one of the first uh, World Bank's country economists or macroeconomists working on Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, um, That was a very... Eye-opening time period, and I, I think it actually had quite an impact on, I guess, the, the I guess, the way that I see things. In that, you, know, you, you are educated. You, you, can go to to um, university. You can learn about macroeconomics. You can learn about how prices work. You learn learn about how financial markets work. But until you see it when it doesn't, <laughs> it, it really drives drives it home when you see absolute poverty, and that's what one saw there. You actually saw not relative poverty that we talk of now, it was absolute poverty in many cases. You saw how the market system didn't work, and that had quite a significant impact on me. But after doing that for a couple of years, and uh, I had the opportunity to to move back, uh, so to um, speak, to sort of move back to that sort of monetary central banking roots, but I moved into the treasury of the World Bank, uh, which obviously manages the capital of the uh, World Bank. Uh, and um, that's where I really learned how to manage money. That's how I learned how to manage bonds, uh, manage currency. And I did that for uh, six years, which is obviously building on my central banking background. I was able to um, apply really that sort of macro monetary background to how
0: markets work. The early part of your career, Keith, at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand and then the World Bank in Europe, coincided with a significant deregulation period. How did that end up affecting your career, do you think?
1: That's a very good question because, yes, I was there. uh, I think I joined the RBNZ in 1984, roughly. Um, So I was actually there during that period of quite radical change uh, during... The drafting of the Central Bank Independence Act. That's really what the whole, what the whole reform and deregulation process was back back home, was really saying, look, you know, we've got subsidies for this, we've got uh, government interventions for uh, that, you know, we've we've got uh, government sort of limited prices, so on and so forth. When you get a more efficient economic uh, outcome. From, from basically letting the market allocate that. So, you know, that was the sort of basic guiding principles of the whole deregulation process there. But then the sort of flip side to actually go and see it on the other side of the coin, as you quite rightly sort of identified there, in the Soviet Union or a failed state, effectively, uh, where the market system didn't wasn't um, you know, there. The, that really sort of drove home, in my mind, the importance of making sure that the interests are all lined up. One of the things which has always stuck in my mind, which really drove it really home, there were two, I have two visions, and I'm going to have to jump very soon, but I'll just share two stories. One was the first time, I think it was April or May 2000, 1992. I'm driving from Almaty, which is the capital of Kazakhstan, to Bishkek, which is the capital of um, Kyrgyzstan, which is a poor little country up against the border against China. At the time, it was about three and a half million people. Kazakhstan's huge. It, 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 it's massive. It, it, it's, it, it's, it, it's, 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 it's the largest unknown country that, that, you know, that, that people don't know. But anyway, driving on the main road, it's, it's kind of like driving on a country road back home. It, it was basically like a two-lane highway in it was. This is the main road between... Amati to Pushka, right? And you're driving through these villages, and there's old ladies, you like your classic sort of Russian, you know, the um, babushkas kind of look, right? Sitting on benches in water. They're sitting there in water in front of it, effectively what it looked like, like a mud hut. I'm overstating it, but this is on the main road, right? That was absolute poverty. The second story, very Quickly, which is about the markets, which I think is of more relevance. I'll never forget. I had a one-on-one with the Minister of Finance in Kyrgyzstan in the very early days. He wanted to understand how markets work. So it was a Sunday morning. He called me in on a Sunday morning. So there's he, me, and an and an and um, an interpreter. He's like, can you walk me through how the farmer will, come, will get stuff into the market here you know, in downtown Bishkek to actually sell his product? So, of course, I go through the, you know, basically economics 101. You know, he plants a crop. He's got an incentive because he wants to sell it in the market. He's going to bring it into the market. He's going to sell it. And, but if there's too many um, potatoes, obviously, when it comes to the next harvest, he's going to plant corn. Right, So I go through this painstaking and he's nodding and he's getting it. We get to the end and he says, well, yeah, I get it, but, but the government obviously has to be in charge of the transport. That was like a, just a huge eye-opener. And so when I talk about you know making sure that the incentives, that the structures are right, you know, there's a <laughs> classic example.
0: Turning now specifically to your investment career, which beliefs most prominently most significantly influence your investment philosophy
1: it really comes back to that, to value you know what is the intrinsic value of what you're going to be purchasing and so for us and for me it's really in a bond and currency space you know what is the real return i'm going to get from owning this asset now most people tend to think in nominal terms, but it's really that real fundamental value that matters. So if I go and buy an asset, what am I going to have at the end of that asset after I own it for five years or one year or 10 years? What is the true intrinsic value of owning that? Uh, It comes back to making sure that that it's a solid sound asset. uh, And then trying to Get a good handle on what is the um, predictability of the of the cash flow that is associated with that asset. So that so those sort of fundamental sort of views sort of marry up really with a lot of what we do here, which is you know we're value driven. We look at real yields. We ask you know, what is the value that we're going to get from owning a country's bond after we take off the expected rate of um in. in uh, inflation.
0: And who would be the single person who's most significantly influenced your investment philosophy?
1: I think it's a journey for most people. You actually learn stuff as you sort of, as you go through that um, journey. So you sort of pick up sort of basic building blocks on, uh, on the way. So for for me, that, I guess, crystallized or all fell into a very clear, coherent view, really when I met Ian Sims, who's uh, my colleague and my friend, mm-hmm. uh, the chairman and CIO of, of um, Colchester, where Ian really had been working with within that real yield uh, purchasing power parity framework in global bond space for a number of years. You know, we met, we found we're of like mind. We have slightly different skill sets, but the fundamental tenets that underpin our view of the world um, are the same and really sort of crystallized it. So you know, really I think I think Ian has had a significant impact in the way that I've thought, but really helped me bring all of, all of those learning blocks all those lessons uh, sort of crystallise in a rational sense.
0: One of my favorite quotes uh, can be applied to investment philosophy. It was from Peter Brook, uh, applying it to his philosophy as a film director. And he said, hold on tightly, but let go lightly. What do you do about holding on to your core beliefs tightly and yet still subjecting them to challenge? How do you test the core beliefs that you hold?
1: I guess the very simple answer is, is that the market tests you every day. (laughs) So, and you know, there is a little bit of truth in, in that, you know, the market does test investment processes daily, but more to the point on an ongoing basis through the years and through cycles. So it's very much, I would venture that you are right. You do want to hold on to your core investment, um, underlying um, philosophy, and you must be open to being challenged by that. But ultimately, it's the test of time, and you must be disciplined about sticking to that um, investment process. But the way you're challenged on an ongoing basis is is through a whole range of different uh, means. One is that we've built a very deep and rich diversified team of investment um, professionals here. Uh, we have a, a range of the number of years that those individuals have been part of, of the team. We have people that have been with us for one year. We've got people that have been with us for, for going on 12 years. Uh, they, they come from a rich and um, diverse background, both in terms of in a uh, geographic sense or a national sense, their educations are all different. So on and so forth. So we look to bring a range of people into the in investment team, who are given the opportunity to challenge, to say, well, you know, should we be continuing to sort of look at countries for, um, say, looking at a country's balance sheet uh, or its governance or its social or um, and, or environmental policies was the way that we were looking at them before. Are they still relevant now? So there's, it's an ongoing evolution.
0: Looking ahead and taking into account your investment beliefs and philosophy, uh, what do you see as the secular trends that are affecting the investment class that you specialise in? We're obviously at
1: a bit of a crossroads uh, right now, uh, one could say. Um, because really, it's in my view, it's all going to be driven by what is the future rate of inflation, which may seem a, a simple way to look at the world. But in very simple terms, if we get an, an unexpected large inflation uplift globally, well, by definition, the central banks will respond to that. They're going to be slow. They'll probably be late. They'll probably be kicking and screaming, given what we know now. But ultimately, they're going to have to uh, respond to that. But critically, that's going to lead to an increase in interest rates, both nominal and real interest rates. Now, that's going to have quite significant implications. Uh, Obviously, a lot of people instantaneously jump to, well, then you don't want to own bonds because obviously bonds are going to sell off. Well, that is probably true, but they are forgetting about the next impact which is probably going to be a larger impact. The interest rate is clearly the cost of capital. If the cost of capital goes up, that's basically means that every single asset price, whether it's property, whether it's uh, equities, is obviously going to be under threat or under pressure. Uh, so I think there's, a, that really I think is, the key thing that I think individuals should be focusing on over the next three, five to 10 years. Just adding just another couple of quick things, which we are sort of focusing on, although I'm certainly focusing on is that is, I think the the impact of sort of so-called FinTech or uh, electronic banking, not necessarily in the way that I think a lot of people think about it, but more, I think for the impact on the uh, on the um, developing world. Because what it's going to do there, and what you're already seeing it doing in places like India, is it's giving large percentages of the population that never had access to finance or the banking system access to capital, access to the banking system. This could potentially be and probably will be quite a significant economic driver. You're already seeing it impacting in um, India Uh, and you can see it in in other countries. That could really lead to a significant uh, long-term uplift in the standard of living globally and obviously by implication, larger growth um, uh, globally.
0: Without wanting to bring this conversation to a premature conclusion and even less your career, I'd like you to leap ahead to the end of your career and then look back and reflect what are the most positive changes what's the contribution you would have liked to have made most to investing and to the asset class you're a part of
1: one often doesn't sort of sit back and sort of think you know sort of you know down down that path but I think that actually I would look back and I would Take a lot of pride in actually helping, you know, build this company. You know? And what I mean by that, because what it rep- what it represents, you know, it's a it's a singular focus company. We only do one thing. It actually shows that you don't have to be a supermarket in the sort of um, asset management world to actually do something very good. So I would venture that that's what I would take pride in. I would take pride that that this company's sounded on good fundamentals, ethics and morals. And that's actually gonna be able to continue going forward, whether I'm here, whether Ian Sims is here. But we're we're often challenged, well, why sovereign bonds? You can't make money in sovereign bonds. Well, I kind of think that our 20 year track record has has proven that to, to be not the case. But secondly, I take pride in the fact that we've done that by maintaining the integrity of the asset allocation. Tree. Because you know, quite clearly, people own bonds within their diversified portfolios for a number of reasons. But one of the key ones is they're supposed to be their safety. They're supposed to be their safe harbour. And you know, when, when everything else goes wrong, <laughs> typically when it goes down, you're looking to your bonds to, to sort of be the anchor, you know, to sort of be that safe harbour. So I would take pride by basically saying, hey, look, We've, we've shown, as have a number of other firms and with a similar sort of thought process, you focus on one thing and you try to be the best you possibly can do. Look after your client's money, view it as being a guardian, and then I think that's a great thing.
0: Keith Lloyd, CEO and Deputy CIO of Colchester Global Investors, London-based Kiwi economist, specialist in... Global Sovereign Debt. Thanks for sharing your investment beliefs and philosophies.